Uh, we're stepping back into the narrative of Luke's gospel uh, this morning uh, as we really get to what you would call probably the pointy end of this series, Luke's Limitless Gospel. Uh, and I say we're reaching the pointy end specifically because in chapters 19 and 20, uh, if you've been with us, Jesus reached Jerusalem. Uh, and since, uh, since then, he's been teaching in the temple. Uh, and, and it's had the kind of the feel of the last days or maybe the last couple of weeks before the cross. Uh, but today, we kind of reach this next moment of intensification of the story. Intensification, actually a word? Maybe. Let's go with it. Um, yeah, where we step into the night before Jesus dies. So as we move into this now, it's critical that we, we keep the point that we're at in the narrative in view. We've got to keep the broad picture in view to understand the significance, the weight of what's happening. Because understanding that we're, what we're reading isn't just another story in Luke's gospel, not that there are really other, just another stories in Luke's gospel, but this is the final 24 hours before the cross. It changes the way that we read what happens here. And in fact, as our, passages, uh, uh, as our passage opens, we see the final stage being set, really, for the, com- the confrontation that leads up to the cross, or the series of confrontations, perhaps is a better way to look at that. Although more people will get involved later on, the major players get introduced to us, and they step into shot right at the start of our passage today. Uh, and there's a bit of a, a rhythm that's been happening for a while now in Luke's Gospel, uh, but we'll really come to the fore here, which I just want to bring your attention to. Um, the rhythm is that the, the powers of evil seek for their will to be done, and God's will is done. We see here that the powers of evil that would oppose Jesus escalating their game, doing everything they can to take him down. And we see Jesus in complete control as he moves toward the cross. The Father's plan working out step by step, dot to dot, perfectly. Uh, Even in complete control of the actions that are intended by his enemies for his destruction and will eventually lead to his death. We see Jesus in control. So step into this with me. And in our opening section, which as I say sets sets the stage, verses 1 to 13 here of Luke 22, there are, there are three things I want you to note. Um, and, and this is, like I said, the setting of the stage. And here's, here's how it gets set. The first thing to note uh, is that um, we get the re-entrance straight away of the primary human antagonists, um, the, the, the bad guys, if you will, into the story. Uh, We read in in verse 2 that the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death. It's pretty blunt. These are the main people who have been opposing Jesus since he arrived in Jerusalem, back in chapter 19, John 20. They are the baddies. Uh, And uh, we know that. We knew that well before then, in fact, in the story of Luke's gospel, because way back, just before Jesus set out for Jerusalem in chapter 9, he says to his disciples, the Son of Man must... uh, Let me get the exact wording. I'm not going to find it now. He makes two predictions in Luke chapter 9. 
He's got the exact verse number. 22. He says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected. By who? By the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed and on the third day be raised. But if this is happening, uh, if this is happening just as Jesus said way back then that it would, before the road to Jerusalem, right? More than 10 chapters ago in our narrative. That means that as we see these villains re-enter and we hear their plans for evil so explicitly, they were seeking how to put him to death. There is a hint even now that God's plan is very explicitly working out. But then the second antagonist. Uh, the second baddie enters, and this one's the big one, right? They, they, like I said, they're the, the primary human bad guys, emphasis on human. But this guy hasn't been in the foreground since Luke chapter 4. Luke tells us that Sa then Satan entered into Judas Iscariot, who was of the number of the 12. So J Judas, by the way, willing tool here. He's already been at odds with Jesus a number of times. Uh, we see that throughout the, the Gospels. But Satan, the spiritual enemy of God, re-enters the picture. Having failed to tempt Jesus away from the will of God, the Father, back in chapter 4, he now comes to finish him off instead. And Judas goes to the chief priests, of course, and he, he offers them the, the end that they've been looking for, the chance, the thing they've been seeking how to put him to death. Here it is. Judas has come and offered a chance for them to get him away from the crowds away from the, the judgment of people who believed that he was perhaps a prophet or maybe even the saviour. But then the third thing to see here, and this is, this is probably the biggest thing to see in these opening verses, is that it was Passover when these things were happening. The opening words of the chapter are that the Feast of Unleavened Bread was drawing near, which is called Passover. And then in verse 7, we read that the Passover arrived the day on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed comes and this is the day before Jesus died do you remember do you remember what the significance of Passover is to the people of, of uh, Judea at that time look Luke's Luke's saying that it's Passover, it might read to us a bit like him saying, it was the Queen's birthday holiday and they had to get the cake ready. I don't, we don't do a cake for Queen's birthday holidays, but um, it's a poor example. Uh, but, but nothing could be further from the truth, right? It's not just an irrelevant, well, this thing was happening at the same time. You see, we, set, uh, we say that the stage is being set here for the death of Jesus, right? Uh, and it isn't just God throwing something together at the last minute that we see here. In fact, the, the fact that it's Passover uh, and the death of Jesus is looming tells us that the culmination of ages is working out here. You see, when we say that, I'm uh, sorry, that's uh, the Passover. What's the Passover? The Passover is a stage for the cross that had been set and in development for 1,500 years-ish, 1,450, somewhere there. Let's look at Passover, the quick version. The Passover is a festival that Jews celebrated annually, uh, the key part of which was the sacrificing of a lamb. Passover was a remembrance festival, and at the heart of the remembrance festival, there was a remembrance meal. And what it remembered was this twofold thing. Uh, it remembered that 
the, the deliverance from Egypt that Israel had had, uh, but also their deliverance from the wrath of God at the same moment. Do you remember, you know, that often misrepresented part of the Bible, the plagues in Egypt, right, the Exodus. Uh, Israel were slaves, oppressed in Egypt under Pharaoh, and God sent plagues on Egypt, um, uh, on Egypt to, to force Pharaoh to let his people go. This sounding fairly familiar probably to most people. If it doesn't, that's okay, we'll cover it. Um, plague after plague, God sends, and plague after plague, Pharaoh refuses to let God's people go. Or he says, yes, I'll let you go, and then when the plague is taken away, then he goes, no, actually, we won't let you go after all. Um, nine plagues this goes on for. It is one of the more hectic narratives in the Bible. The river Nile, the only river in Egypt, by the way, turns to blood. The land is covered in frogs, gnats, locusts, flies. The people are covered in sores and boils. The sun turns to black. Uh, it, it, it seems like God will unravel all of creation in this narrative for the sake of delivering his people. And yet Pharaoh is still hardened and he says, no. But then comes the 10th plague. And the 10th plague is as special as it is terrible. God says that he will pass through the land and kill every firstborn in the land of man and of beast. But every household of, Israel, of the Israelites are to do this special thing. What they're to do is they're to kill a perfect spotless lamb and they're to put the blood around the doorposts of their house and then they're to eat the lamb, spit roast over a fire. And the blood of the lamb will be a sign which will mean that when God comes through to pour out judgment, they will not be harmed. Because the lamb died so that they could have life. And as they ate the lamb, they were to do it. I love this little detail you get in Exodus. They were to do it wearing their walking robes. They were to do it with their belts on and with their staffs in their hand. No, lamb bone here, staff there. Like That's how to do it. They were in their walking clothes because by this, God was going to deliver them from slavery. And of course, as soon as it happens, Pharaoh calls to them in the middle of the night and just says, go, get out. You're not, not welcome here. Take whatever you want. Leave. We need you out of our land. And coming back to the days of Jesus, the fact that he's going to die at Passover is so incredibly significant because this is exactly what God has planned. Jesus will be the true Passover lamb whose blood will save his people from slavery, not to Egypt, but to sin and from the ultimate judgment of God. God's plan is working out and not just in, in the broad picture like that, also in the very minutiae of the story because we read that when Jesus' disciples ask, you know, where are we going to have the Passover, Jesus? He says, like, paraphrase, walk into town, there'll be a guy with a jug, he'll tell you where to go. Like, it's like, it's so clear that God has every detail lined up here. So as the scene is set for us, we see King Jesus, sovereign over sinners and Satan. God's plan working out to a T. And then the next thing that happens is that Jesus gives us the new feast. So the Passover has been prepared now, right, as we come to this next section of the text. And it comes 
time for them to celebrate the meals in this upper room. And we have one of the most moving moments in the Bible as Jesus sits down to celebrate the Passover meal with his disciples. As the new true Passover lamb, Jesus leads his people and that's, that's us as well, by the way. We read this knowing that he's not just speaking to them, but he's speaking to us. He leads us to celebrate the sacrifice that has been paid for us. Or for them, that would be paid for them the next day. And what we see here in, in the minutiae of the meal is that King Jesus, sovereign over sinners and Satan, expresses his sovereignty in this selfless love towards his people. This part of the text that we're looking at now goes from 14 to 30 in the verses there. Um, And these are some of the more familiar verses in the Bible, uh, if if you've been sitting in churches for for a bit. Um, Often we will read some of these verses before we celebrate communion. We've been doing that for a few weeks now here, um, and we often do it. Uh, Some churches will read some of these verses every time they celebrate communion. But because because of that familiarity, there's a danger here as well. It can be easy for us to miss the the profound, beautiful, sovereign selflessness of Jesus in this passage. We can can miss the details of what happens here because we assume them. We assume that we know this. We get everything that's happening here, right? So what happens? He sits down at the table with the 12. Now remember, context, night before he died. Just about to eat a meal that literally looks forward to his death quite brutal death, about to instate the new meal that looks will look for his people back to his death after he's died. And he knows it. Jesus knows, you know, as he tears that bread in halves and as he, he cooks a lamb, he knows this is all a picture of me dying and me carrying the wrath of God for my people. And what does Jesus say? I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Why does he say that? I mean, seriously, right? Why would he have been looking forward to this moment? Not just tolerating that it would happen, but anticipating it. Can you hear the heart of Jesus in the words there? He doesn't just say, hey, I'm hungry, let's eat. I've got work to do. He doesn't just say, I've been looking forward to this. He says, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you. Uh, In the original language, we don't do a lot of Greek here, but this is a fun one and it's a really important one. He actually just emphasizes the verb by using the noun form of the verb. Something like, I have longed with longing to eat this with you. It's the same uh, word that we see in the the parable of the prodigal son, uh, when the son is starving to death and he longs to be fed. Even with the pods that the pigs are eating, right? Except for in this instance, it's used twice in verb and noun to emphasize it really heavily. Why? Why has Jesus longed and longed, longed with longing to eat this meal that points to his death with them? 
the answer has to be sheer love. There's, there's, I, I can't see anything else. He longed to eat this with them because at the table of Jesus, we see the death of Jesus by which we are saved. Jesus says he won't eat this meal again with them until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God because it's just about to be fulfilled. The Passover, which had always looked forward to the death of Jesus, the perfect sacrificial lamb of God, was going to be fulfilled the next day at the cross. And so Jesus has longed and longed for this because by this, by his death, which he would illuminate for them and us in this meal they would be saved. We would be saved. And he loves us. So he longed for it to happen. Every, every person who ever would trust in Jesus to overcome their sin and its judgment would be saved because his body would be broken and his blood would be poured out. And we see this selfless love as, as the meal progresses. You know, notice there's so many words in here, so many bits that we might skim over, and we're just going to touch a few of them here. Um, uh, notice, for instance, that before the cup and before the bread, Jesus gives thanks. Now, you might, you might look at that and just go, well, look, Jesus gave thanks before every meal, right? Like that, he, he, was, he was a good Christian. Yep, that doesn't quite work. But uh, uh, <laughs> he was a good Christ, you know, he, he said grace. Um, but think about it. Like, seriously, think about this. If you... If you were about to tear apart a piece of bread that symbolized your body being rent asunder, if you will, your hands being nailed to a cross, your side being speared, and, and your soul carrying the full wrath of God against sin and sinners, could you bring yourself to the words, thank you, God, for this meal? I don't think I And yet, even though it will crush him, he's filled with gratefulness to the Father because this is my body which is given for you. This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. This is the Father's plan of salvation working out, and it is a good plan. And Jesus is just thankful to the Father because he loves his people and loves his father by his body and by his blood we are saved and brought into the redemptive promises of God brought into the covenant brought into the promise of his grace and forgiveness and love committed to us on no merit of our own unconditionally poured out to all who would believe let, let me Pause there for a second and ask you the question. How do you view communion when you do it? Possibly tiny plastic cups and little pieces of bread don't help. I don't know. When we eat the bread and the juice, though, how is that for you? How, how we view the bread and the cup can act as a fairly decent barometer for how much we have grasped the wonder of the gospel, or at least for how much we are grasping it now how much the wondrous gospel love of the Saviour is grasping us, perhaps. There's been times in my life uh, when it's been a case of witchery for me, um, of just kind of, this is the thing we do. Maybe that you relate to that. 
it's a tradition that we do because because that's what we do, right? We're Christians. We we eat bread and we drink tiny little juice cups. Um, when we when we first started out as a church, a Justy Church, um, before before COVID times, uh, we would just have a, a cup or a bowl of juice and and a loaf of bread, and you would tear off a piece of the bread and you would dip it in the juice. Uh, and, and, and I love that, actually. It's such a, a vivid reminder. His body was broken for me. Um, I love he, he laid it down for me. It's so visible there. Uh, and my life and my peace and my joy and my forgiveness are all one for me in the choice of my Savior to lay down his life for me in, in grateful love even rightly understood, the table of Jesus should bring us to tears every time. I'm not saying it does that for me every time, but I'm just saying tears of joy such as his sovereign selfless love for us. But if you hear, hear me saying that and you realize that, that you haven't been treating it rightly, you haven't been uh, holding the gospel in the reverential awe that it should deserve, that it should be held in, um, maybe be comforted. I don't know if this is a good thing to be comforted by, but th- there's, there's, there's grace for that. That's a good comfort. Uh, but also be aware that you're not the first uh, to, to fail to hold the, the table of Jesus in awe. In fact, the very next thing that we get in this text is <laughs> astounding because as the disciples sit at the table of Jesus and are shown the sovereign, selfless love of their king, we get this bizarre moment of selfishness from them, from his closest followers. Remember, we got specified at the start, this is the apostles we're talking about here. This is the 12. Jesus tells them that one of them will betray him. And even as they are discussing which of them it could be, another argument arises. Which of us is the greatest? My brain explodes. Can you, can you picture this? Jesus is like, one of you is going to betray me and hand me over to the Jews to die. And Peter says, oh, could it be me? And John says, could it be me? And James says, could it be me? And whilst we're on the subject of who's kind of close to Jesus and, and who's got the best relationship and who might betray him, who might not, do you think I might be the greatest? Like, <laughs> does it seem a bit discontinuous, like a bit, a bit odd that that happens there? It does to me. It's bizarre, almost like they've heard Jesus mention the kingdom of God way back at the start of, of the Lord's table part, and, and nothing else has sunk in. Perhaps, perhaps they're still expecting the military Jesus in some way, you know, whose kingdom will mean wiping out the Romans, setting up a new Israel, um, dominance for us. We, we get a hint of that toward the end of this passage. Um, we just jump ahead, because we're only going to address this here. Jesus ends this section by warning them that hard days are to come, hard times are coming, uh, that they need to be prepared. You know, take your purse, take your sack, um, take your sword with you on the road because dangerous days are coming. And what do they do? They start gathering arms. Um, They get two swords and they bring him two swords and they go, hey, is this enough for the rebellion? And he goes, it is enough. And and the most commentators look at that and don't go, he's saying this is enough to overthrow the Romans because obviously that's not what he's saying in the broader context of the gospel. He's saying, that's enough of that. What's wrong with you people? He doesn't say what's wrong with you people. That's a a bit loose from the text. He's saying enough of this. 
And, and you know, so jumping back to the bit that we were in, they're jousting for who gets the good seats in the new kingdom. However they get there in the conversation, Jesus, having revealed his, uh, his heart, worked out his sovereign selflessness, he's so patient and so beautifully calls his followers toward the same selflessness, calls us towards it. The way of the world is that when you have power, you lord it over people. But Jesus says that isn't the way to his people. The great are to be like the least, he says. The leaders are to be like servants, he says. Sometimes people point to passages like this and, and draw a false conclusion. They say, Jesus is saying that we're not meant to have leaders in the church because he says leaders are meant to be servants, so basically no leaders, right? Um, but notice that's, that's not what he's saying categorically. He says that the leaders need to be leading like he leads in servanthood and selflessness. He roots their definition, our definition of leadership uh, and greatness in his example of leadership and greatness. Jesus came and he led his people. He did lead. He he was and is great, but his greatness is expressed in love, in selfless love towards those he leads. He gave directions. He commanded them pretty regularly, actually, if you look at it. He led them, but every moment of his leadership was intended not for his personal gain and their detriment, but for our redemption, for our good. So Christians, if you want to know what a Christian definition of greatness is, Look at Jesus. Possibly a little bit too obvious to say. Greatness is using all of your power and your greatness to serve others. This is true for, let's let's chuck this in a couple of contexts to to make it a little bit more real. This is true for husbands who are called to lead their families, not domineeringly, but as servant leaders like Jesus is a servant leader, giving themselves up for their wives and for their families as Christ gave himself up for his church. You know, broaden that a little bit, it's true of both parents with the kids, right? Like, you lead these children not by domineering them, but by, by servant-leading love. Doesn't mean you don't lead them. You do lead them. Doesn't mean you don't discipline them. You do discipline them, but you do it in love for them, not out of a desire for your convenience or a, a desire for you know, them to be a bit quieter you know, or to be well-behaved. No, you do it in love. You want, them to, you want them to be people who grow to know the Savior and who grow in Him all, all the days of their life. It's true of church leaders. Um, here's a challenge for guys like me. Um, who are called into roles of leadership so as to servant-heartedly lead the people of God into deeper relationship with the Savior. I, uh, I sent Dad a link last night um, to a, a yacht that's for sale in Western Australia. So he had, happened to pop on a um, auction website, and it's a 106-foot yacht that's currently a bit of $109. Um, um, if I ever buy such a yacht, you know that I've failed at this, though, right? Um, quite evidently unless I sell it and donate the money to church again, but after one cruise. But 
No, like, like church leaders, there's a, there's a high call here. And there are people here who either are, have been, or will be leaders in the church in various different ways. We're called to express any leadership in this, whether in a formal role of leadership or a relational role of leadership in gospel community leadership or eldership or, or whatever. Express it in selfless love towards those that you're leading. It's a high calling. You know, it's true of a Christian, though, in a position of leadership and power, no matter where we are. In the workplace, on a sports team, in a volunteer organization, even just in kind of social relationships where you tend to be the person who takes the lead role. We're called to reflect the selflessness of our sovereign king by expressing that leadership that we have been given for the good of others and ultimately for their restoration to God. You have purpose in every, every role you ever be in. Imagine, imagine the missional impact of this, that this has when, when Christians take up their call to be leaders. Not everyone's called to lead, by the way, although we all lead in some way, shape, or form at different times. But who do it as in a Jesus-shaped way. I don't, I don't know if, you're, if you've worked in a secular workplace all that much. People can be... Uh, lovely. I have some excellent colleagues. Uh, I've, I've worked in some great workplaces, but grace and forgiveness and the good of others are not the primary paradigm that is usually accepted as the leadership model in, in the secular workplace. Well, you know, if, if, if they are, and like, I have to allow here, I've worked in places where people have given a lot of themselves, you know, people who aren't Christians. Um, you know, I worked up at the Maitland Hospital. We had Nurses there who would just throw themselves into on-call shifts a lot of the time so that other people didn't have to do them. Um, so don't let this reflect on them. But, but we should say you know, selfless sacrifice for others, even when it does happen in a circular, secular workplace, it usually happens to the point of, of my own entitlement. Um, you know, I've given so much for this place, you better listen to me. I, de- I deserve to be respected here because, because I've worked all the extra shifts, you know, or I've, I've done all that selflessness, which gives me something. But that's not how Christians are to be. We lead selflessly for, for two reasons. Firstly, we lead selflessly out of the example of our Savior. Here's another way of putting that. We love others because he first loved us. Added an others to that sentence. We can pour ourselves out without expecting things in return because we have received grace. Uh, and love, and, and all that we need, the Bible tells us, and if we take that seriously, that God's working it all for our good, if we, if we have everything we need in Jesus, then we can pour ourselves out for others, selflessly, without becoming entitled. The other reason we can lead selflessly in every relationship and situation is what Jesus says next. He says that he will give to his followers a kingdom. And he makes a special promise to the apostles that they especially will rule uh, over over God's people when when Jesus returns. But more broadly, the Bible has promised glory, even rule, to those who follow Jesus now. 1 Peter 1 says, uh, the, the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And and. Most good rep- commentators, I think, and I've, I've, we've gone through First Peter. I've studied this myself. I think it's saying 
it's, it's not like this is praise and glory and honor for Jesus and not for you. I think it's a both end. He's saying it's going to be all around. You know, my glory is not now, though, is the point. It's at the return of Jesus. So I can be free to lead without seeking my greatness and my glory now because this isn't where my glory is. Revelation 22, looking forward to the new heavens and the new earth, says they will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. If you want a glorious, honored life, then take in mind that seeking one now will lose you the greatest honor ever greatest glory but when we understand that our hope isn't now our hope is in the future when we will reign by the side of our great god and in his light dwelling with him and that's the best part of it all by the way then we can be freed to lead like jesus leads now so like jesus says to Pilate later on we can say our kingdom is not of this world we don't look forward to what might be gained now. It pales in comparison to what is coming for us. No, we look to the selflessness of our Savior and the hope that he has won for us, and we walk in that, which frees us to be like him now. We're going to move into communion in just a moment, but as we do, uh, what we should probably be aware of is our terrible unworthiness to come to the table of Jesus. It's not the only thing we should be aware of, by the way, but uh, maybe you already are. Maybe you hear me talking about the sacrificial selflessness of Jesus and you hear the call to live and to lead in that way, uh, showing what he's like, and all you can see is how you failed at that. Or maybe, um, maybe it's something else for you, you know, a different area of sin in your life that, that would tend to crush you but the reality the Bible presents is that we are all sinners, all in need of grace, but equally that all who call on the name of Jesus and turn from sin are saved. Actually, um, our passage ends on this wonderful picture of this, um, wonderful note of the sovereign grace of God, because, because it ends with this little interaction between Jesus and Peter, um, where it becomes apparent that Peter believes he is great enough He's never going to fail. He's going to stay by Jesus' side through everything. But Jesus tells him that Peter will deny him three times tonight before the rooster crows. Yet another one of those little details that shows, wow, God's plans working out, work, working out to the T, right? He knows exactly every step. But before he tells him that, he gives him this astoundingly reassuring promise says in verse 31, Simon, Simon, that's Peter, Satan demanded to have you, like to have you all, really, it's a plural there, but I have prayed for you, and that's a singular, he's talking to Peter there, I have prayed for you. Just, just pause before we step forward in that. What, what we have in that sentence is that um, there is a conflict of wills here, Satan versus Jesus. And, and we, might, we might doubt and worry. Peter might have doubted and worried, right, uh, at this point in the sentence. But, but he probably didn't. He was like, I don't need any of you. But, uh, but we might doubt and worry for ourselves 
in this way, right? Sure, Jesus wants me. He called me to faith in him. But I feel like my sin is too much sometimes. I feel like my failings will overwhelm me sometimes. I feel like Satan's going to win out in the end sometimes. Peter didn't feel that now in this part of the text. He certainly felt it by the end when Jesus' words came true and he leaned and he wept bitterly. But finish the sentence that Jesus says there, right? And, and, and know that if Jesus has given you faith in him, this is a promise that holds true for you as well. Because he says I'm, he's, he's interceding for us even now. Jesus says, Satan demanded to have you, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned, strengthen your brothers. Notice Jesus' words there. When you have turned, not if you turn, if I win out here, but when my will is done, as I have prayed to my father, then strengthen your brothers. Those Jesus saves, he places his sovereign will upon to hold them. And he will not let them go. His will is done. So if we can come to the table to communion free to confess our sin, repenting willingly of all of our brokenness and failures because we know that our Saviour has set his sovereign, selfless love on us and he will not let us go. Would you pray with me before we, before we head up to the table? Lord Jesus, Son of God, God's Son, would come as a man, come in, in the likeness of men, and, and as a man, and, and be in the human body, and, and that a massive part of why you did that is so that your body could be broken for me, your blood could be poured out for my sin, you could carry the wrath of God against my wrongdoing, even today, even this week. Lord, we, your people, just want to come before you and say, we are sinners. We are people who fail to walk in your ways regularly. We are people who are in need of your grace today and every day. We confess it, Lord. We don't do so hiding our sin. We confess it freely because you have dealt with our sin and we trust in your sovereign, selfless love for us at the cross. We trust that the, the new, true Passover lamb is enough to deal with our sin, to deliver us from slavery to sin and to deliver us from the judgment of God and to deliver us to him, to peace with God to an everlasting life with God. So we confess, Lord, we're sinners. We failed, but you never fail. And we thank you that you hold us fast. We pray that as we come to the table, you would show us 
your great goodness to us and lead us to live in line with that reality. In Jesus' name we pray.